The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here are your top five at five. We begin with In the Bank. Millions of Americans are already getting their slice of the $1.9 trillion stimulus package over the weekend. But the appetite for President Biden's next act, that appears to be coming up short. And a historic milestone in the fight against COVID-19 here in the United States. As the vaccine rollout, it picks up steam. But overseas, a less than perfect picture when it comes to their inoculation efforts, as backlash against one major vaccine maker is only growing. Turning our attention back home, Wall Street. Stocks coming off a record-breaking session. Tech still left in the dust, but Goldman says that might be coming to an end. Plus, crypto, fine art, billionaires, oh my, a deep dive into the trend that is captivating the recently rich. It is Monday, March 15, 2020, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Frank Holland in for Brian Sullivan. Kicking off this Monday morning with a look at your stock futures. Uh, Got to look at it right now after the week that we had. We see the futures there fractionally higher across the board. We're looking at a caution, cautious open to Wall Street on this Monday morning. The averages coming off a mostly higher session on Friday. The Dow hitting its 13th record close of the year and seeing its best week since November. The S&P coming off its 12th record close of the year. The Nasdaq slipping Friday a half a percent, but still ending the week higher by 3% and snapping its three-week losing streak. Treasuries just continuing their climb higher. The 10-year yield this morning, we see it sitting right at 1.62. That's about 20 uh, basis points below its high on Friday and its pre-pandemic highs in February of 2020. And watching crypto this morning as Bitcoin hits a record near 62,000 over the weekend, slipping just a bit this morning, right now sitting at 57,890. Now turning our attention to the global markets, a bit of a mixed session of trading overnight in Asia. The Shanghai Composite closing down nearly one and a half percent. Europe, however, just getting its trading day started. We're seeing green across the board. You see right there the CAC up nearly a half a percent. Now turning to the pandemic and the global vaccine rollout. The U.S. hitting an immunization milestone over the weekend. According to data compiled by the CDC, the U.S. has surpassed 107 million doses to date with this past Friday, Saturday and Sunday, seeing some of the largest single day increases in vaccination rates since this rollout began. Reportedly between 2.7 and 3.2 million shots given in a single day. But overseas, that rollout, it's less than smooth, especially when it comes to that growing backlash against one major vaccine maker in countries like Ireland, Denmark, Norway, Iceland and the Netherlands. CNBC Europe's Steve Sedgwick has much more. Hi, Steve. 
Yeah, really good to see you today, Frank. Yeah, you've got to remember, this is a continent, the European Union, that is really struggling uh, with its vaccine programme anyway. There's been all kinds of arguments over the last uh, few months with the producer AstraZeneca, which is an Anglo-Swedish uh, vaccine maker as well, uh, about the rollout or slow rollout uh, of the vaccines to Europe as well. So now we've got another uh, layer where you say, actually, there are concerns coming out of Norway, concerns coming out of Denmark on reports of blood clotting being caused by the AstraZeneca vaccine. But there are a whole host of regulatory authorities out there, including the WHO, the World Health Organization, saying at the moment it does not appear to be the case uh, that these concerns uh, are valid. In fact, the European Medicines Agency, the medicines agency which is carrying out a review into those incidents, said the vaccine's benefits continue to outweigh the risks as well. We're hearing it in the UK as well, where the MHRA, which is the Medical and Health Products Regulatory Agency, they said people should still go and get their COVID-19 vaccine when asked to do. But uh, you mentioned the Netherlands, one of the latest countries uh, to pull back from vaccinations just for the very short term as well. The Netherlands have actually ordered 12 million AstraZeneca vaccine doses as well. 300,000 of those uh, scheduled to be delivered in the next couple of weeks as well. So real concerns at an individual country level. But in terms of the World Health Organization, the MHRA and the EMA, which is the broader body in the European Union, they're still saying Go and get your shots, Frank. So, Steve, is what we're seeing in these countries affecting the broader vaccine rollout in Europe? Yeah, I think it is, actually. I mean, when you look at the numbers which you were just giving to our viewers at the wall, it, it is really quite impressive how the Biden administration has really got people uh, getting vaccinated at speed as well. The British, actually, who have been in some quarters saying the success of our rollout is because we are independent, because we are no longer part of the EU. Uh, that might be a bit of a stretch for some people, but the British have now vaccinated around about 36.5 people per 100. The US only slightly behind at around about 30. But over in Europe as well. Now, this is quite staggering. Only 10.5 people per 100 have actually been vaccinated. So you can see the European Union is way behind what we're seeing in the United States and the UK as well. And Frank, we've got another row going on as well between certain nations within the EU. In fact, a group of six nations have said we're just really unhappy about the way the rollout of vaccines is being distributed uh, amongst countries as well, because, of course, it was the European Commission under Ursula von der Leyen who actually took charge of the purchases and rollouts of vaccines. And now some countries are saying we're just not getting our fair share, Frank. All right, Steve Sedgwick, live in London. We appreciate it. Turning our attention back home here to the U.S., a White House victory lap as COVID-19 stimulus checks, they started appearing in people's bank accounts over the weekend. But top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he's a little wary of the road ahead. NBC's Tracy Potts joins us now from Washington with the very latest. Good morning, Tracy. Hi there, Frank. Good morning, everyone. So people are starting to see the money, the $422 billion of stimulus payments that have already started rolling out, as you said, hitting bank accounts over the weekend. The rest of America, 85% of households, the Treasury Secretary says, should see that money by the end of the month. And yes, the top infectious disease expert in the U.S., Dr. Anthony Fauci, says he's got some concerns about people who don't want to take the vaccine. A recent NPR PBS Marist poll found that 47%, almost half of Trump supporters say they don't want to take the shot. Uh, and he's calling on former President Trump to speak out and encourage people to do so, saying that this is about science and health and not about 
politics. Also, there is going to be a big effort this week uh, by the Biden team, the president, the first lady, the vice president and the second gentleman to get people on board with this American rescue plan. They're rolling out a road tour, so to speak, uh, trying to go city to city to convince people uh, that this plan will work, that it will lift the economy, that it will help families. That starts today in Las Vegas with the vice president. Uh, they're making seven stops in five days, Frank. Yeah, a lot of people describing that as a victory lap there, uh, Tracy. Thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Great. Thank you for the stuff this morning. It's Monday, Daylight Savings Time. Tracy, I apologize. Great stuff as always. We're going to move on. Thank you. All right. A number of other headlines to get to on this Monday morning. Short sellers are upping their bets against the latest Wall Street Rage SPACs. That's according to to new data from S3 Partners. The dollar value of bearish bets against shares of SPACs has more than tripled to about $2.7 billion from $724 million at the start of the year. Among the largest high-profile targets of the short sellers are a blank check company started by venture capitalists Chamath Palapatia and Churchill Capital, the SPAC that is merging with EV startup Lucid Motors. President Biden will reportedly name Gene Sperling, a former director, a two-time director of the National Council of Economic Advisors, to lead implementation of the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief plan. Sperling was a top economic advisor to former Democratic presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. And Carnival CEO Arnold Donald says he is bracing for at least two more tough years for the cruise industry, which he says is unlikely to return to pre-pandemic levels until at least 2023. In an interview with the FT, Donald says his company's full fleet might be sailing by the end of this year, but it will take longer to recover pre-crisis revenue levels. Carnival shares are up about 30 percent year to date. All right. Turning our attention back to the markets, the Dow coming off its best week since November as tech shares continue to just search for direction. But there may be hope for growth ahead. A note from Goldman Sachs to clients over the weekend reads, Based on our client conversations, many believe that the equity market rotations that have recently accompanied rising rates have gone too far. We believe equity valuations should be able to to digest 10-year yields of roughly 2% without much difficulty. Joining me now is Independent Solutions Wealth Management Portfolio Manager Paul Meeks. Paul, i got to ask you about that Goldman Sachs note. Agree or disagree? You know, I hope they're right, though. Right now we're sitting at a 10-year yield of about 1.5, 1.6%. I still think there is some upside. And as long as there's some upside to that uh, rate and it's not cap, we'll probably be in some further trouble for the tech stocks because they're the ultimate long-duration asset. And so I would tell folks to circle up your best tech bets, but don't buy them yet. So, I mean, we have to look at how tech's done over the last month, down 6%, but actually over the last week, it's up about 2%. We keep talking about this interest rate pressure. How come we haven't seen it over the last week? Well, I think we've had uh, quite a move already, right? The beginning of uh, August last, we're at a 10-year yield of about 50 basis points. We climbed to 1.6% plus, and you think about that, even though that's historically on an absolute level, still rather low. Man, it has been a big shot in a very short period of time. And so maybe we're starting to see some stabilization. Maybe we'll get some relief, but I'm not betting on that yet. One thing you are betting on are chips. You're very bullish on chips, which have not seen the same sky-high valuations as other areas of tech. Uh, Can you give us some names that you're especially bullish on and why? Yeah. So I like the semiconductor industry within the tech sector because the valuations are more defensible. 
uh, so less uh, damaged by this spike in rates. And uh, also the fundamentals are quite strong. We have uh, supply constraint in most of the industry within the sector, but although that's not good for shipping units, it's very good for pricing and pricing always trumps everything else. So I like my top pick in that space is Micron, MU, followed by a semiconductor capital equipment company, Qlik and Sofa, that's ticker symbol KLIC. And then last but not least, I like NXP, ticker symbol NXPI. All right, Paul, we're almost run out of time, but I know uh, you've also been a little wary about the valuations of some areas of tech. When you took a look at a Zoom with uh, forward earnings 150 times, um, are there some names that you're kind of thinking that after the pandemic might not show those same uh, valuations or have the same strength? Excellent question, Frank. Yeah, what we have to do as tech investors is we reopen the economy. We have to think about which of these tech companies that came to the dance over the last year just because of the theme of uh, work at home, all of these uh, COVID pushes, what is their growth rate going to be like afterwards? And so when you things, see things like uh, DoorDash and uh, Etsy and Zoom, you have to say, OK, they might be good companies, but man, their growth has got to slow after uh, COVID. And I just don't know where the growth will stabilize. And you can't really buy those until you can solve that riddle. Paul Meeks, we appreciate the insight on tech. Uh, tech certainly will be a closely watched sector today with the tenure at about 1.6 or the yield on the tenure at about 1.6 percent. Paul, we appreciate it. All right. Thanks, <clears throat> when we come back, breaking down e-commerce's banner year with Adobe and their outlook for this year and beyond. Plus, with stimulus checks on the way, we head back to Washington for a look at President Biden's next move and the appetite for a wealth tax. PIMCO's Libby Cantrell weighs in. And later, with NFT surge in popularity, our Robert Frank may have some insight into what's behind these massive moves higher. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. And welcome back. More than one year into the pandemic and one area of the economy has been a clear winner. That's e-commerce. Already in 2021, $121 billion has been spent online. That's up more than 30 percent from the same time last year. And at current growth rates, next year could be the first trillion dollar year for e-commerce. 
All that according to Adobe, releasing its year-in-review report this morning. And joining me now in a first on CNBC interview with more findings is John Copeland, Vice President of Consumer Insights at Adobe. John, good morning, and thank you for being here. Good morning, Frank. It's great to be with you. So looking at this report, according to the report, COVID generated an additional $180 billion in online spending over the past year, basically during the pandemic. And that's a 20% increase over the same period. What does that mean for consumer spending and e-commerce going forward? Yeah, so COVID basically was a catalyst to the e-commerce channel last year. And what we saw when you look at the full calendar year um, of 2020 was $813 billion. That's 42% growth over 2019. That's basically like combining two years worth of growth into a single year. So this podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Consumers have really embraced the online channel to meet their needs, you know, during these challenging times. So these times have certainly been challenging, but we do see some light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccine rollout. What does it look like when we do have a full vaccine rollout, perhaps May, June, July, and we're seeing more vaccinations? Do you see those trends continuing? Yeah, so we're all kind of wondering what that's going to do uh, in terms of e-commerce. And we're forecasting this year somewhere between $850 billion, and that's if everybody you know, gets vaccinated and rushes out and we see kind of a slowdown. That would only be a 5% increase over last year, up to $930 billion. That would be a 14% increase over last year. And that's more typical of what we see year over year in the e-commerce channel. All right. So e-commerce is growing, but it's growing beyond just delivering packages to our front steps. Another growing trend is buy now, pay later. Um, I know why it's good for consumers. I know why they want to do it. But is this good for retailers? Yeah, it's very much good for retailers. In fact, what we've seen of February this year, so just last month, relative to February of 2020, which is kind of on the the cusp of the pandemic, a 215% increase year over year in buy now, pay later orders. And in terms of uh, retailers, it comes along with larger average order values. What we're seeing is 18% larger orders when customers are using that service. Interesting. Interesting. You know, they used to call it layaway. I guess everything old's new again. <laughs> yeah. Um, although, you know, with buy now, pay later, you actually get the good up front. You don't have to wait until the payment's done. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Uh, another growing trend is buy online and pick up in store, also known as BOPIS, or sometimes it's buy online and curbside delivery, or sometimes it's buy online and e-commerce lock, e-commerce locker. People also call it click and collect. Not as fun as saying That's BOPIS. Right. Um, do you see that trend continuing? Absolutely. So, you know, in February of this year, we're already seeing it growing 67% year on year. It's always been huge and growing during the holiday season, but now people are clearly working it in as part of their fulfillment options, right? Picking up in the store gives consumers the ability to schedule it according to their availability and knowing that stock will be there for them when they want to pick it up. Yeah, those e-commerce lockers also gaining a lot of popularity. A lot more people looking for a completely contactless pickup. All right, John Copeland from Adobe Insights. We appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Still on deck, another dramatic turn of events in the trial of former biotech startup star Elizabeth Holmes. We're back right after this break. Stay with us. 
Today's big number, $1 trillion. That was the U.S. budget deficit between October and February, according to the Treasury Department. That's a 68% increase over the prior year period. And welcome back. Two stocks on the move this morning. Roche says it's buying U.S.-based Genmark Diagnostics in an all-cash deal for $1.8 billion, or $24.05 a share. The price represents a premium of 43% on Genmark's closing price on Wednesday. That was before speculation of that deal hit trading desks. California-based Genmark provides molecular diagnostic tests that are designed to detect multiple pathogens from a single patient sample. All right, let's get a check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Philip Mena is in New York with the very latest. Good morning and happy Monday, Philip. Happy Monday to you, Frank. Good morning. Well, winter is packing one more punch for some states. This blizzard became the fourth largest snowstorm in Denver's history on Sunday, and a two-day snow record was shattered in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where they were buried in more than three feet of it. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo is facing growing calls to resign, and now President Biden is weighing in. When asked by reporters if he should resign, Mr. Biden said he wants to see what comes of an investigation into the sexual harassment claims. Multiple women, including at least three former aides, say Cuomo sexually harassed them, while a fourth woman, who currently works for Cuomo, reportedly told supervisors that he groped her at the governor's mansion. Como says he will not resign and has denied touching anyone inappropriately, but has apologized if he made anyone feel uncomfortable. This year's Grammy Awards looked a bit different, of course, because of the pandemic. Still, that did not stop music's biggest stars from hitting the red carpet and picking up some trophies. Taylor Swift took home the Album of the Year Award for Folklore. That is her third time winning the award. Finally this morning, one of this generation's best players in the NFL is stepping away from the game. New Orleans quarterback Drew Brees is retiring after 20 seasons in the league, 15 of them with the Saints. The 42-year-old announced his retirement on Sunday, saying this is not goodbye, rather a new good a new beginning. And Frank, I mean, this guy was often overshadowed in his career, we know, by the likes of, you know, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers and such. But, uh, I mean, he was a winner. He won one title, holds all sorts of awards, all-time career passing leader. No doubt he's a surefire first ballot Hall of Famer. Oh, absolutely. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a, a parable for our international viewers. It's like, I don't know, Neymar maybe? I'm not a big soccer fan, but I was just looking up big-time soccer players. This guy's one of the greats of all time, but it didn't look good when the mayor of New Orleans put out a video asking for another quarterback to come to town. It didn't look good for him. Well, he, he, was, he was kind of uh, losing it a little bit in the last couple yeah. of years, but you know what? He put in his time, and he meant a lot to the city, you know, especially after Absolutely. Katrina. Absolutely. Definitely a legend. Philip Mena, we appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All right, still ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, exposing the link between Bitcoin's boom and the NFT surge and the recently wealthy behind it all. Plus, if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, you really should do it. If you miss Worldwide Exchange or Brian Sullivan, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. And March, of course, is Women's History Month, and we're spotlighting some of our CNBC contributors. Here's Arias Asset Management CEO Karen Firestone on what empowers her. Empowered by the fact that I believe in myself. I was one of the few women who worked uh, at Fidelity, but I thought I can put my mind to something. I can research a company as well. I can understand stocks. I can manage a portfolio as well as the guys. And I just had to remind myself of that all the time because I was so dramatically outnumbered. But I, I thought I can do it. And that's what kept me going.
stocks look to keep the momentum moving in the new trading week with the Dow and the S&P hovering at new record highs. Stimulus checks officially hitting bank accounts this weekend as the Biden administration turns its attention to its next policy priorities. PIMCO's Libby Cantrell lays out what investors need to know. And Bitcoin taking a bit of a breather after hitting a yet another new high as the crypto rally accelerates. It is Monday, March 15th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back. I'm Frank Collin in for Big Papa, Brian Sullivan. Here's how stock futures are looking as we're halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. Green all across the board, all of them up, just about a quarter of a percent. The Dow and the S&P 500 coming off fresh record closes on Friday. The Dow seeing its best week since November. Treasuries continuing their slow climb higher ahead of this week's FOMC meeting and policy decision. We're seeing right now the 10-year sitting at 1.613. Forecasters expecting the central bank to acknowledge an improving U.S. economy and possibly tweak their interest rate outlook, which as of today does not include any rate hikes through at least 2023. And four stocks to watch ahead of the open. Penn National Gaming, Caesars, NXP Semiconductors, and Generac. All of them higher in the pre-market, you can see right here. NXP up almost 7%. All four will be joining the S&P 500 in a reshuffle ahead of trading on March 22nd. And now to this morning's other top stories. Bitcoin pulling back a bit after hitting a new record high over the weekend. The crypto climbing to nearly 62,000. Right now it sits at about 56,000. That pullback coming after a report that India would pursue a ban on digital assets. Still, Bitcoin's price has more than doubled so far this year. Air travel continues to show signs of improvement. As the TSA reports its highest level of passenger screenings in nearly a year, the agency says officers screened more than 1.35 million people at airports on Friday, the highest figure since March 15th of last year. Still, that figure was still down about 20 percent from the same day last year. And Texas power provider Gritty Energy is reportedly planning to file for bankruptcy. That's according to The Wall Street Journal. The expected move comes after the state's grid operator cut off the company's access to customers for unpaid bills following last month's crippling winter storm. High bills from that storm have also forced two other power companies to seek bankruptcy. All right, turning our attention to Washington now as the Biden administration begins the rollout of its $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. Those $1,400 checks at the center of that package began hitting bank accounts over the weekend. Alain Moy joins us now with much more on that timeline. Good morning, Alain. Well, that's right, Frank. The first tranche of checks will continue to roll out through the rest of this week. The White House says that 85 percent of households will receive a payment either for the full $1,400 or for a smaller amount. Now, the first payments will be direct deposits into bank accounts. Officials said that paper checks will go out by the end of the month. And the IRS has also been testing out prepaid debit cards for those who may not have access to a bank account. Now, according to an analysis by the Brookings Institution, it took almost four months to distribute 90 percent of the first round of stimulus checks that were approved a year ago. Now, it took less than three weeks for the IRS to hit that milestone for the second round of $600 checks that passed back in December. 
Treasury officials would not project how many payments would go out this week or how long it might take them to finish the job. But Secretary Janet Yellen said only that she's committed to getting the money out as quickly as possible. In a letter to staff obtained by CNBC, she called the effort a huge responsibility because if we do our jobs right, then we accelerate this recovery. This is not just about the checks. Treasury is also dealing with the expanded child tax credit, tax-free unemployment insurance, and ensuring that student loan relief isn't taxed as well. And Frank, don't forget, we're also in the middle of the regular tax filing season as well. So Treasury is urging people to get their returns in early and to do it online to help speed up the process. Going on in D.C. Alon, please stay with us. We're just getting started with this. All right. The rollout of that $1.9 trillion stimulus package, hiking the federal budget deficit even further and raising some fresh questions on how to pay for it all and the financial feasibility for the rest of President Biden's agenda. And that includes infrastructure. Speaking yesterday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was pressed on whether the Biden administration is weighing a wealth tax to address all this ballooning debt. President Biden has put forward a number of proposals. Um, he hasn't proposed a wealth tax, but he has proposed um, that corporations and wealthy individuals should pay more uh, in order to uh, meet the needs uh, of the economy, the spending we need to do. And um, over time, I expect that um, we will be putting forth proposals to get deficits under control. But no wealth tax? Well, that's something that we haven't decided yet. Oh, long pause there from Janet Yellen. All right, for much more on this, let's bring in Libby Cantrell, head of public policy at PIMCO. Alon Moy still with us as well. Good morning, Libby. Good morning. So, Libby, before we get to the wealth tax or the possibilities of it, let's talk about inflation. Um, consumer price index, that was pretty tame. We haven't seen any significant wage increases with the employment situation are you seeing any signs that point towards breakout inflation? Yeah, well, yeah, thanks, Frank. And, 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 you know, I think very understandably, this is the top question for our clients at, at PIMCO and something we're discussing a lot internally. But I think the answer is no. Um, while we do expect some upward pressure on inflation, we could see inflation even drift uh, close to that 2% Fed target, at least temporarily, we don't necessarily uh, expect a breakout in inflation for a few reasons. I think most importantly is those structural uh, factors that have been dampening inflation, whether it's globalization, automation, uh, the fact that organized labor is just not as powerful as it used to be. Uh, those still very much stay remain intact post-pandemic. And the other thing, Frank, I think is important here is even though uh, everyone's focused on these stimulus payments and sort of, this, I think, this assumption that a lot of this will be spent. Um, if past is prologue, about 70 percent of the previous stimulus payments have either been saved or have gone down to pay down debt. So we don't necessarily as expect a you know, massive pickup in, in consumption. We could see it sort of gradually. But again, we don't just just don't see the factors uh, that would lead to a sort of 1970s, uh, you know, hyperinflation cycle. Yes, and that's right, Libby. I think what's also interesting there is that uh, 
Democrats were aware of this problem of much of the money from the previous stimulus checks being saved rather than being spent. And so that's one reason that they brought down what the top threshold, the top income levels that could receive a check might be. Anywhere between 6 million to 9 million people, households, will no longer receive a check that received them in previous rounds. So that could be one sign that uh, consumer spending, more of those checks might be spent, more of it might go to boosting consumer spending um, than had in previous rounds. Uh, but certainly, we're seeing also a different mindset right now amongst consumers, right? We're hearing people book travel six months, a year down the road. And so that might also be um, an example of the ways that people have a chance to spend this money in ways that they didn't in previous rounds of stimulus checks. No, that, that's absolutely right. And again, I mean, we are, we're calling for you know, above 7% real GDP growth in 2021. So uh, on the growth side, you know, we do expect a you know, natural pickup in, in consumption. There is um, you know, certainly signs of, of pent-up demand. And again, I mean, we do think that we could see inflation you know, drift higher, but drift higher. Uh, we don't necessarily see this sort of spike in inflation and then uh, inflation remaining very high, uh, like some uh, economists have, have intimated over the past few weeks as it, re as it relates to the stimulus bill. So look, let's switch gears back to the Biden policy agenda. Um, two questions and two words that a lot of people are hearing from D.C. One, the filibuster. What do you see as the near term future of the filibuster? And also reconciliation, the tool that was used to pass this covid bill. Could that be used to pass some of the other uh, priorities for the Biden administration? Yeah, I mean, we're getting deep into to, to Washington process, but process actually really does matter. And I think we saw uh, that uh, it was underscored as it relates to this most uh, recent uh, stimulus bill, just in terms of the rapidity uh, that that it passed. I, mean, I think, Frank, to answer your, your question very briefly, no, I don't necessarily see uh, a change to the filibuster. Most importantly, we don't see 50 uh, Senate Democrats voting to eliminate the filibuster. That would have the, the, the biggest consequences from, from the markets and economic policy perspective, because, of course, it would only require them 50 votes, not 60 votes to pass all legislation. You know, we just don't see that happening. I think you, know, there, you will certainly hear more rhetoric, uh, but again, we just don't think the votes are there. Senator Manchin famously has come out uh, over the past few weeks again and again uh, saying that he doesn't support the elimination of the filibuster, albeit he may uh, support some marginal changes. But I think also, you know, importantly, there are many other centrist Democrats in the Senate who also uh, line up with, with Senator Manchin. They're just a lot more private uh, about it. Now, reconciliation, it's a, it's a great point because this is, a, I think, a turning point or an inflection point for the, the Biden administration here. Do they, you know, do they uh, prevent working with the other side, with Republicans, and try to use reconciliation again? You remember, the reconciliation is the tool that does allow for certain types of legislation to only pass with 50 votes. Of course, that's what uh, we just saw this COVID relief bill pass with. We also saw the Trump tax cuts pass by reconciliation. It's a way to you know, only pass against certain types of legislation uh, with 50 votes, but basically prevents working from, with the other side. And you know, Biden was all about unity, uh, about bringing folks together. And so this is, a, this is an inflection point. And I, you know, I think that the view is he probably will try to do this via regular order, via 60 votes, at least uh, for the next you know, few weeks, if not the next two months or so. Uh, and then he may have to resort to to reconciliation. But I think the most important thing from an investment and, and, and markets perspective 
is that you know COVID relief passed very quickly. We should not expect infrastructure uh, to pass this quickly. Infrastructure, I've always called it the unicorn on Capitol Hill. Everyone likes to talk about it, romanticize it, but no one's actually seen it. Uh, and it's complicated. It's 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 ill-defined. It means different things to different people. So I think the bottom line here from a market's perspective is that we should not expect infrastructure to pass very quickly. Uh, it's going to be you know, a long slog. And again, there is a chance that you know, President Biden, like other presidents before him, uh, is not successful on this front. And Frank, if I could just jump in with a final thought here, you know, business community has been pushing the administration to pass an infrastructure bill by July 4th. But certainly in terms of process, they have until the end of next fiscal year to use that reconciliation tool to get this done. So they do have some breathing room there as well. All right, we're going to have to end the conversation there. Libby Cantrell, thanks for the insight. Alon Moy, thank you as well. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, rise of the NFTs. Robert Frank explains how the boom in crypto millionaires and billionaires is helping fuel sales of digital art. But first, as we had to break some of your other top stories, Stripe has raised $600 million in new capital ahead of its highly anticipated market debut. The digital payments company, now valued at $95 billion, says it plans to use that fresh funding to invest more in Europe this year. Former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes is pregnant, according to new court documents. As a result, Holmes, who is expected to give birth in July, is once again requesting her federal trial for allegedly defrauding the company's investors to be delayed. And shares of Xiaomi surging as much as 10% today, this after a U.S. judge temporarily blocked a move by the Trump administration to ban Americans from investing in the Chinese smartphone maker. Worldwide Exchange is back in just a moment. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A week after an NFT boom, that's non-fungible tokens, we may be getting just a bit of insight into what's behind these gigantic moves in the digital art world. Our Robert Frank, he joins us now with much more uh, eagerly waiting to find out what's going on behind all this, Robert. Yeah, Frank, we're just it's just a mystery wrapped in an enigma. We're starting to learn a, a bit more about how this is working, because last week we actually saw two things happen. First, the record smash for that NFT for sixty nine million dollars. And we saw record market caps for for crypto, uh, crypto, both Bitcoin topping one trillion dollars and Ethereum topping two hundred and twenty billion dollars. NFT prices and crypto values are not only linked, but they are fueling each other's growth. NFT sales totaling $340 million in February. That's up from just $12 million in December, while the prices of Bitcoin and Ethereum have more than doubled. Experts say the crypto rich who have seen their initial investments soar in value, they just don't have many outlets to spend or invest all those gains without triggering reporting or tax requirements. NFT appeared just in time, providing a new large liquid market that's almost driven entirely by crypto. For instance, the buyer of that $69 million Beeple who goes by the name Meta Coven described himself as an early crypto investor who started buying Bitcoin back in 2013. Another big NFT collector is Tim Kang. He is a music and crypto entrepreneur. He bought Ethereum back in 2016 and is now paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for Beeple NFTs. And the underbidder for the Christie's Beeple was Justin Sun. He, of course, is the founder of the cryptocurrency platform Tron. So, Frank, a lot of links here with all this sort of trapped wealth 
that's in the crypto gains looking for an outlet, and NFTs came just in time for them to spend it. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, I got to ask you, Robert, and I'm sure a lot of people have been asking you about this. What does all this say about whether or not this NFT craze is here to stay, or does this mean it's more of a one-off because, hypothetically, this crypto boom can't last forever? Yeah, I mean, you tell me where Bitcoin and Ethereum are going, and I'll tell you where the NFT, NFT craze is going. It does appear that because these two are linked and, you know, we see Bitcoin down a little bit today. But basically, as long as crypto continues to rise on a long term basis or even just stabilize, you have all of these gains that are looking for a home. And so I don't see the NFT craze dying anytime soon. Now, what may end this price, $69 million, even people said that's just not sustainable. But he said, and I think a lot of people now say, that NFTs as a whole will be a strong market and there'll be more applications for that blockchain technology going forward, even if we see crypto start to subside or fall. Yeah, you know, Robert, if I had 69 million, it doesn't have to be sustained. I'm, I'm sustained with that 69 million. Uh, on a serious note, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, where do you see this all going? Are we going to see more of sport NFTs gaining popularity, kind of taking the place of trading cars? Or do you see it more going in the Beeple direction where people are looking for very unique pieces of the NFT? I think they're going to be sort of two ends to the barbell. On the one side, we're going to see on the very high end, we're going to see art become more accepted. We're probably going to see more mainstream popular artists create their own NFTs to sustain those values. And, and that will be the sort of highest prices that will be paid maybe in the six or seven figures. On the, you know, I say lower end, uh, Top Shots, which is the NBA, those video highlights, those are selling for six figures. So those are still selling for a lot. But most of those Top Shots, which I think have kind of replaced or at least supplemented the whole trading card market, which was very active even before NFTs came to light. I do think that's going to be the broad based market that even not for the crypto millionaires and billionaires, the broader sort of sports trading population will continue to support that market. I, I, that's got a lot of legs. I think you know, you're seeing not just the NBA top shots, but other sports. NFL guys are now getting into it. That's going to be a lot of trading. So I see that along with crypto punks. There was a crypto punk, you'll have to look this up, that sold for $7 million on the same day that the Beeple sold. We all didn't notice that because the Beeple price. But these are sort of little cartoon emojis that are selling for millions of dollars. So, uh, you know, I think this, this could go anywhere. Robert Frank, excellent stuff as always, man. This is a fascinating, fascinating part of uh, the art world, a part of the digital economy. Great stuff. All right. Still ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. Thanks, Stocks fighting to build on new record highs. Seema Shah lays out the lingering issues that she says could royal global markets. And if you haven't already, just subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, the Big Papa Brian Sullivan, you can check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. And as we go to break, take a look at this. Shares of Rakuten surging more than 20% today. This after the Japanese tech giant announced plans to raise more than $2 billion which will include issuing new shares to Walmart and Tencent and a push to better compete with U.S. rivals. Worldwide Exchange, we're back in two minutes.
All right, welcome back. The markets have continued to march higher in the, in the first quarter. Despite just a few bumps in the road, the Russell 2000, often considered the reopening index, the best performer this year, up 19 percent. But your next guest says there are still some lingering issues that could affect global markets, including uneven access to vaccines, rising bond yields, and when the Fed may tap the brakes to counter inflation. Seema Shah is chief strategist at Principal Global Investors. Seema, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with this inflation talk. So consensus generally is that rising yields is a big issue, but 1.6 is historically low. How big of an impact are rising yields? How big of an impact is real inflation having on the markets? And how does a perceived lack of clarity from the Fed impact all this? Yeah, Frank, I mean, look, these are really key issues for markets at the moment. We're, I think we're across the board expecting a rise in inflation um, over you know, the next couple of years. Now, to our minds, this isn't too much of a concern in a way, because it's likely to be, you know, temporary inflation, which is just driven by supply side stuff that the Fed typically looks through. And then you have inflation fading out to around 2%. The problem is, in the meantime, as you're seeing inflation rise, we're seeing bond yields rise. Um, And for the Fed, that might be a concern if it results in tightening financial conditions. To us, you know, at the moment, financial conditions are still really easy. Even if you look at real yields, they're in negative territory still. So this is a good environment at the moment. But of course, these are these are um, potential challenges along the way that I think all investors really need to be cognizant of. Yeah. Speaking of challenges, let's talk about the vaccine rollout globally in the EU. We just uh, earlier in our hour, we talked about a number of countries having some issues with at least one vaccine. Um, In the U.S., things are going well, but not quite the same story around the world. How does the vaccine rollout impact the global markets and especially emerging markets? Yeah, you know, as you said, we're seeing vaccine rollout. It's pretty good in some places like the U.S., like the U.K., like Chile. Um, and then you've got slightly differing um, differing experiences. If you look at Europe, they've had a really slow start to the rollout and still haven't managed to catch up. So they're far behind uh, where we would have expected them to be at this stage. And certainly for emerging markets, you've got a lot of places who are only just receiving their vaccines. So actually for them, vaccine rollout could even extend really well into 2022. So from a global market perspective, what this means is, you know, we're seeing so many governments really concerned about mutations. And we're starting to see discussions about from governments about introducing border controls uh, to countries which are a little bit behind with their vaccine rollout. So for countries who are really dependent, for example, on tourism, this means that they're going to still be held back even through this global growth recovery. So it's one of those areas where you're going to see a desynchronization of global growth, I think, as this year goes on. So looking ahead to the FOMC meeting, are you expecting to get that clarity that a lot of investors are looking for? And is 2% still the right target? I think it's still a big question. Um, I don't think it's going to be answered this week. I think it's something that the market is going to be grappling with for the remainder of this year. What is it that the inflation that the Fed considers to be overshooting? How long does it need to be above that 2% target? These are questions that I think as the months go on, the Fed will have to come to a point where they answer it. I just don't expect it to be this Wednesday. Awesome. We have to almost wrap this up. One more quick question. Um, how do you see the markets responding for the rest of Q2 as we see a solid vaccine rollout here in the U.S., but as you mentioned, an, an, an uneven one globally? Yeah, I think look, the upward path, as you said, it's a strong growth environment at the moment. So really, that should be positive for risk assets, for equities. But of course, as you said, the rising bond yields, it does create some volatility. So it might be a bit of a a jagged move upwards. 
All right, Seema Shah, we're going to have to leave the conversation there. We appreciate you being here with us, um, and we're going to continue to watch the markets ahead of that FOMC meeting. Thank you. All right, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box coming up next. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.